Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, November 4th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and joining me in the studio via Skype, this certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, you made it back from Vegas, it sounds like, in one piece, right? I did. I'm still a little jet-lagged, I think. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a, a time difference is a killer, plus it was daylight savings time, too, so I'm all confused. Man, oh man. What was it, like two hours time difference? Maybe three? Three. Oh. That's that's significant. Come on, man. Talk to me after you've done the all-nighter from Astana, Kazakhstan to Washington, D.C. Um, so you, your wife went out there afterwards, so you guys were able to have a little time away from the house and uh, enjoy enjoy the vacation out there as well, right? Yeah, she did. We, we uh, saw a concert. We saw Lady Gaga live, which oh, was wow. kind of cool. Very cool. Um and yeah, we like that. A lot of the restaurants out there, you can't beat them. So we just had a great time. Sounds like a very wise way to invest your time, Matt. <laughs> I'm sure she appreciated it. And I'm sure you did too. Um, okay. Well, hey, listen, you know, we, we've got a lot going on this week. We've got on this week's financial show more earnings. We're going to talk some real estate. We've got more what's the last stock you bought and why, as well as stocks to watch for the coming week. Uh, so let's go ahead and get it started with MasterCard's most recent quarter. Earnings came out early last week for MasterCard. Um, and you know, I mean, Mastercard's a big company. It's not going to be something where you see some big pop or once you know, big drop one way or the other. But it did seem uh, like a pretty good report from what I saw, Matt. I mean, revenue growth of sixteen percent for a business this size is just really impressive. Um, what what did you take away from the quarter? Um, well, I mean, obviously, the you said the revenue was an impressive point. Um, International was really what stood out to me. Domestic was only up 12%, and Europe was up 16%. So that was a big uh, takeaway to me. Um, you know, margins grew about 80 basis points a year over year, which is always nice to see, especially for a company of this size. Oh, yeah. Um, and spending money hand over fist on buybacks. You, you always um, mention that their dividends are really low, but when they're spending you know <laughs> five times the amount of their dividend on a buyback, Especially with the stock, the stock's been up since then, so I really can't fault them for it. No, no, I guess you can't. And I mean, to that point, I mean, I did look at the. I mean, one of the one of the things I always look at with these companies is because you're right, they are buying so many shares back. Uh, I mean, just taking a look at the share count, is yeah. I mean, the share count is down. Um, it looks like about twelve percent since 2014. So that clearly is something that is helping. Investors, uh, and, and I, you know, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a shareholder of Mastercard, and, and I mean, I'm not complaining really at all. Um, I mean, I feel like over time you're going to see nothing but you see that dividend grow over time. I mean, you know, so I, I can be patient and hang in there. Um, but, but yeah, generally speaking, it, it, you know, there's not a lot to this business uh, other than the ongoing investments that they're making in the network and pursuing new opportunities like cross border. Um, Obviously, the ever-changing payment space here as technology changes um, the way that everybody's moving money around. Uh, to give some context on how the stock has done, you know, and I was I was updating that war on cash basket, um, and, and to remind the listeners out there, the war on cash basket it's it's equal holdings in Mastercard, Visa, uh, PayPal, and Square. And so we started this back in um, July of 2017. So as of today, the war on cash basket is up. 
103.6% versus the market, uh, 29.5%. So, just that's what you call a good old fashioned butt kicking where I come from, Matt. <laughs> and MasterCard is pulling its own and at 118%. It's up 118% as a component of that basket. So, MasterCard uh, has just done really well, particularly in the face of, I mean, what is, what is the biggest competitor in the space, Visa? Yeah, well, I'm I'm actually looking at the chart right now, and I Mastercard kind of fun fact over the past ten years is up eleven hundred sixty percent. Wow! Um, since about two thousand five, when it you know first went public, up fifty nine hundred percent. Sheesh! That's uh, and and you got to think back when they first went public, it was still pretty much a cash based society. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was we we're still in the very early innings. So that's been amazing progress so far. I mean, that means a, a ten thousand dollar investment in Mastercard would be worth about six hundred grand today. Hey now, if you had gotten at the beginning, and that wasn't even that long ago. I mean, I was an investor back when Mastercard went public. Well, yeah, and I mean, it, it does feel like every quarter we look at these businesses and think, oh wow, they just keep on performing so well. I'm waiting for that window to be able to go in and buy shares and invest. Is it too late? Have I missed the boat? And I mean, I I don't think I don't think you miss the boat with a company like this. I mean, I I don't know that you're going to find big time buying opportunities for businesses like these because they are pretty well known. They're pretty darn reliable given what they do. Uh, so sometimes you got to bite the bullet a little bit, and maybe pay up a little bit more than you'd like to. But but you know, I mean, I think that's also an argument for building a position out, right? Not buying it all at once, but maybe buy some and then you can add more when you feel like there's an opportunity that arises. Uh, but but yeah, I, I certainly feel like there are plenty of great days for MasterCard to come. And um, as a shareholder, I remain very pleased uh, with how the business uh, is progressing. Let's move over to, I think this is probably one of your favorite businesses, right, Matt? Berkshire Hathaway? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, it's a big, big staple in my portfolio. Well, they had um, earnings that just came out. I was glancing through that 10Q earlier. Um, you know, it, it, another steady as she goes business. I, I you know, I, I feel like maybe there's some uh, questions I'd have for uh, Mr. Buffett, and Mr. Munger regarding a dividend. But we'll get to that, Matt. What do you think about the quarter? <laughs> no, don't say that word. Don't say that <laughs> word. Um, so, I mean, the earnings were good all around. Um, Operating income was up by about a billion dollars year over year, so that's I mean about a thirteen fourteen percent gain, and uh, that's excluding its investment portfolio, which is doing pretty well. Um, I mean, Apple, its biggest holding, just hit another all time high. I think Berkshire is something like seventy billion dollars in Apple stock now. Um, the thing that stands out to me in in a bad way, and this is where you're kind of going with the dividend. Is a record high cash hoard. They have 128 billion dollars of cash sitting in their um, in their accounts. Sounds like um, a lot. It sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. Just to kind of throw these here's here's three names, and guess what they all have in common: <laughs> Netflix, PayPal, and IBM. Netflix, PayPal, and IBM. I don't know what do they have in common. Those are three stocks that Berkshire could buy in full with its cash just in its bank account. <laughs> If you if you include a reasonable amount of debt, you open it up to companies like McDonald's or Nike or something huge like that. Oh, man. So so this is a lot of money they have sitting on the sidelines right now. Yeah, yeah um, it is. They're they're putting some to work. The buybacks went up a little bit in Q2, which is nice to see. Uh, Berkshire's underperformed the S and P significantly this year, like six percent to twenty two percent. Yeah, 
So, um, you know, when, when that happens, Berkshire's one of the ones that's going to be a great performer when the market's doing terrible and there's tons of big opportunities out there. They're putting their cash to work, stuff like that. But they're going to underperform when the market's going crazy like it has been in the past year or two. Yeah. So that's a good time. I like them. I like I, I, you, you said you'd like a dividend. I'd like to see them put more money into buybacks personally. Um, you know, you have $128 billion and you're spending $700 million on buybacks. That's really nothing. It's yeah. In the grand scheme of things. And, and I mean, that's also on top of they, they essentially eliminated that 20% premium to book value um, mandate, right? I mean, they, they had said for a while that they would buy shares back only within that 20% premium to book value at any given time. And I, and I understand that perspective. They want to make sure that they feel like they're getting. A good value, and that the shareholders—that's an easy way to sort of understand if, if you know, that's a good value. Um, they eliminated that and basically just said, "Hey, we're going to buy them back when we feel like it's opportunistic and shares represent a good value." And I trust that judgment. I mean, I like that they lifted that, but yeah, I do. I am getting to the point where, and I'm not a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder anymore. I used to be, um, but but I I do feel it does feel like they're kind of trying to have their cake and eat it too. Because if you're going to sit there and make the argument that we're not going to pay a dividend because we feel like we can do better things with that cash, but yet on the other hand, you've got this cash balance now that stands at like eight hundred and fifty trillion dollars. I mean, like you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to get those two things to to square, and I can't quite get there. Uh, so I'm not really looking at it from the short term perspective here of like oh, the stock has underperformed this year. Because I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think that Berkshire Hathaway for the most part. Steady Eddie business, it's going to probably do better in difficult times because of its diversity, because of the markets that it's in. Um, but but I, I do feel like this is a good point in in Berkshire Hathaway's life to to maybe get a dividend going and 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 try that out because I mean, you know, there's a lot of goodwill I think that you could you could uh, gain from shareholders by doing that, and and everybody loves cash in their pocket. That's true. Well, I mean. One thing I will say is, you know, I mean, you've, you're no stranger to hearing that there's a recession coming at some point, sometime in the next few years. <laughs> Ber- Berkshire is a stock you really want to own going into a recession. $128 billion will look fantastic when, if and when the market really goes on sale. And it's it's a question of when rather than, rather than if. But, yeah. You know, that's the kind of position you want to be in in a down market. Um you know, market crashes by twenty percent. Berkshire's going to clean up. Yeah, that's what you call a war chest, isn't it? I mean, that is they've always prided themselves on on being in an, in an enviable capital position. I, I like that. It makes sense to me. Um, maybe, yeah, I don't know. One hundred twenty eight billion sounds like a lot. I mean, I don't know if I'd feel different. I mean, if they said it was eighty eight billion, I don't know. But anyway, uh, certainly seems like the business is in good a shape as ever, and and that's uh, that's the bottom line for shareholders. Uh, let's. Pivot over to what we call our baby Berkshire Hathaway, oftentimes here at the Motley Fool, and that is Markel. Markel Insurance uh, built very much in that Berkshire mold. Three big drivers for the business: in insurance, investments, and the Markel Ventures operations. Um, I, you know, I haven't gone through the call there and looking at the business. The results. I mean, I you know, I continue to be very impressed with what they're doing. I always immediately go to the Markel Ventures uh, part of the report. Just I, for whatever reason, that's just to me. I feel like that's the neat part of this business where the future 
really j- just seems so bright because they're they're kind of doing that same sort of Berkshire Hathaway thing where they're uh, investing in in these little businesses that are that cross all sorts of different markets and um, and do all sorts of different things. It looks like revenue from Arkell Ventures grew to one point six billion dollars year to date. From 1.4 billion dollars a year ago, it's really gaining a lot of traction there. They've made some new acquisitions. Uh, continues to be nicely profitable. EBITDA for Markel Ventures was 219 million dollars uh, for the first nine months of, of 2019, compared to 128 million from last year. Um, but but wondering what you gleaned from the quarter there. Any any concerns or anything you thought work is is working really well for the business? Well, Markel Ventures is definitely the strong point of the quarter. Um, book value grew 18% just in the first nine months of the year, and that's a big reason why. Yeah. Um, it, but, I mean, the rest of the business is doing fine. The insurance took in almost 10% more premiums this quarter than the same one last year. Um, I mean, there's it's and, uh, not for nothing, but, Berk, but Markell has the same cash problem as Berkshire Hathaway, just on a, sm- <laughs> yeah. on a smaller scale. Yeah. Um, their cash and equivalents went from $2 billion to $2.7 billion over the past year. So that's you know I mean for a company of that size two point seven billion is a pretty good cash hoard. It's a lot. Um, so they're having it seems like they're having the same issue of putting putting money to work. Um, I, don't, I don't hear anyone clamoring for a dividend from Markel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess I'm not really. I mean, I am a Markel shareholder, but I, you know, I, I don't expect a dividend from them until they maybe maybe. Maybe they they get uh, bigger by about ten by about ten x, and then I'll start uh, then I'll start beating that drum. How about that? Yeah, to be fair, they don't they don't need what Berkshire would consider a needle moving acquisition to make some money. They yeah. can, you know, they could buy a company for a hundred million dollars and it be a meaningful impact. Whereas Berkshire, it's you know, why even bother? Absolutely. Yep. Well, so, we had yeah. a good question from Twitter, and I mean, to that point, talking about Berkshire and Markel and how these companies. Perform in in good times and bad. We had a question from Twitter. I thought it'd be it'd be fun to to kick around for a second, uh, and it comes from at Twelve Pack Radio. And, and uh, the question is: It seems like Markel is a good business. I'm a shareholder, but shares have remained stagnant relative to the market for the last two years. Any insights into why? Um, wondering what your thoughts there are, Matt. Well, I mean, my thought is generally just because they haven't had any major acquisitions. Mer- Markell and Berkshire are both kind of, they're down market stocks. Um, Berkshire's performed so well over the years, not necessarily because it does well when the market's up 30%, but because when the market's down. Um, I don't know the the statistics for Markell, but I can tell you in Berkshire's case, um, the S&P has been down 11 times in the past 50 years. Berkshire has outperformed in all but two of them. Wow. So, that's that's what makes their money over the long time. They thrive during the the bad times. Um, I mean, just recent investments they made were um, Bank of America and Goldman Sachs during the financial crisis. Those were wildly profitable for them. Um, they bought Amex way back in the day when the stock was in, in trouble. Um, I mean, I could go on with that list. And I mean, Markel does it to a smaller extent, but same thing. When the when in the downtimes is when these companies are really going to shine and make up any lost ground. So during the good years, that's I mean, you know, I we said these are both underperforming the market, but don't think of it that way. Think of it as they're they're holding their own during the good times and they're gonna really just shine and outperform during the tough times. 
And over the long run, that's what really makes the difference that they're doing great no matter what the market does. Yeah, I like that. I like that way of thinking there. I mean, it is, these are businesses that really they are slow growers. I mean, we're talking about insurance, and in Markel's case, specialty insurance. So it's even more of a unique market there, and it's one that they, it's one that they they they're really good at. Um, but but it is it is not one of those things where it's 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 not some kind of a SaaS company or a tech company that's going to be just lighting the world on fire with its profitability. Um, in, in in to your point also. When even when even when times are good, and I mean things things you know, it seems like the entire market is just doing nothing but going up. I mean, companies can run into little snags, and I mean it's it's easy to forget because really at the end of the day, it's probably not that big of a deal. But I mean, it wasn't all that long ago, and this is this is still an investigation that's not been resolved yet. But there's an investigation going into Markel's Catco unit in in regard to uh, setting of reserves and, and disclosures related to those reserves, and so. That could be one of those things that's hanging over their heads just as a dark cloud. I mean, listen, it's not something that is terribly meaningful to the business. I mean, it's not something that's going to be fatal to the business. But there are oftentimes, I mean, I remember when that news came out and the market really did overreact on that on that news. And, and then as context uh, became a little bit more available, we could see that it wasn't really that big of a deal, but it's something that still has not been resolved yet. And so it's my point is, I mean, it, there can always be a dark cloud or two hanging over a company that is preventing it from from maybe realizing its true potential. And and I do agree with you there on on Berkshire and Markel. These are companies that really really prosper when times are tough because they prepare themselves so well for those times. And I suspect uh, you know we'll we'll see that same type of value unlocked from Markel. But it just kind of comes in drips and drabs, doesn't it? Yeah, it's. You know, like I said, it's it's a, a long term focused stock. Don't pay attention to any of the short term noise with with these. Is it's really the best advice I can give anybody who wants to look at any of the, either of these two stocks. Um, I mean, I, I generally tell people not to pay too much attention to quarterly earnings, but it's especially true in these cases. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's pivot over to real estate. Let's take a look at uh, uh, something you have here, Matt Forrest. Now, everybody knows uh, here that that you are part of our Million Acres team. Uh, that is our investment service focused on real estate, uh, helping investors learn more about real estate and ways that, that they can invest and in, in, in build real wealth uh, in, in real estate. And that's uh, over at millionacres.com. Make sure to go check that out. And it, hey, listen, it's free, so there's that too. Um, but Matt, you wanted to talk a little bit today about the tax benefits of real estate investing. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize just what a tax advantage to asset class real estate is. Um, before I get into the discussion, a lot of people, um, I, I just saw that uh, pr- the president lost a, a um, hearing about his tax returns. Uh-oh. And, and they keep saying that it, his returns are likely to show no income. And my theory is the reason for that is because his primary investment is real estate. Right. See, I was going somewhere with that. <laughs> but, um, so, but here, let me just kind of give you an overview of what I'm talking about. The first major tax benefit to owning real estate for an investment, not as your primary home, is known as depreciation. Um, each year, let's say you have a, a rental property that takes in you know $20,000 of income. You can first deduct all your operational costs out of that $20,000, your, you know, your, um, your property management fees, the interest you're paying on the mortgage to own the property, things yeah. like that. 
And then you have this benefit called depreciation, whereas, which means you can gradually write off the entire cost of the house over a set period of years. For residential, it's 27 and a half years. Um, so this is a big tax deduction every year that you can use to further reduce your rental income. And the effect of that is rental income on an investment property is usually barely taxable. Um, if anything, I mean, I have a few investment properties and we, uh, last year, I think one of them had, had a negative negative uh, taxable income, even though it was a profitable rental property. Wow. And the reason is depreciation. Huh. So this you can use this every year until it's until you've deducted the entire value of the property. Um, so it's a huge benefit, and it's why a lot of real estate income is not taxable, which is why I say on the president's tax returns, it's probably going to be so low. Because <laughs> you know, he has a you know, portfolio of you know, hotels and yep. office buildings yep. and things like that. Um, the negative to that is that when you sell the rental property, the IRS wants that benefit back. Yes. It's called depreciation recapture. And I, I, I went through that. I went through that once. I, I do know what you're talking about. I mean, you have to be aware of it. I mean, it, it wasn't anything, anything fatal or that I wasn't, I was, you know, wasn't something I wasn't unprepared for or wasn't prepared for. But I mean, it, uh, yeah, I, I did, I did recall that and, and thinking, wow, you got to be, it, at some point or another, the tax man wants his money. Yeah, it's not, it's not as much of a tax break as it is, as it is deferred taxation. But there's one kind of loophole that you can use to get even get out of that. It's called a 1031 exchange. What that means is if you sell one rental property, as long as you use the proceeds of the sale to buy another one within six months, you can avoid capital gains and depreciation recapture and essentially roll it into the new property. Yep. So theoretically, if you do that a few times throughout your life, you can avoid rental property taxes forever effectively. Um and what's more, even if you do wind up with some taxable rental income after all your expenses and depreciation, re- uh, real estate income counts for that new uh, 20% pass-through tax deduction. Wow. So, yeah, you get that right on top of it. So, And that that's true for rental properties and REITs, by the way. If you get REIT dividends, it qualifies for that 20% deduction. So this is just a really tax-advantaged type of investment, and it really gives long-term investors an advantage, especially – Compared to other invest like stocks that you're holding outside of tax advantaged accounts, obviously your IRA is you know a great place to invest in stocks, and that's a pretty big tax advantage all by itself. But when you're comparing things that you hold outside of those tax sheltered accounts, you know real estate really has some big advantages. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Great insight there as always, Matt. Appreciate that. Uh, listeners, you know we want to hear about the stocks that you're buying. Uh, you can email us at. Industry focus at fool.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. Let us know the last stock you bought and why. We got a tweet from Mark Hyman at Investor Hyman. He tweeted in to tell us that the last stock I bought was guess what it is, Matt? Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> it's a good plan. I don't even need to hear the reasons. Yeah, well, Mark says the last stock I bought was Berkshire Hathaway because one, it's a long-term safe holding that I'm confident in and allows me to sleep at night. And two, so I can go to the shareholder meeting in May 2020 with my dad and girlfriend who are also shareholders. So well done, Mark. Having been to that meeting, I can say that I think you will enjoy it. It's a fun event for sure. Busy, 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 uh, but fun. And make sure you get in line early for the C's candy because it's uh, it's it's well worth it. 
I've um, actually never been. I think I'm going to try to go in 2020. Every year, I just have something else going on at that time of year. You know, like know. a kid being born or we'll something like that. See if, see if we can't make sure to let Mark know. <laughs> you guys can hook up in uh, it, 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 any fool-sanctioned event that we may have there, Matt. We'll keep that on the radar. Uh, and Matt, I also wanted to jump in here because I recently bought another stock as well, and I can now actually tell people about it because the uh, – the the time for silence has passed. Um, I just opened a position recently in Shopify, and uh, so for all of you folks out there looking for that dip in Shopify to go ahead and start buying shares, you're welcome because I have a feeling it's coming any day now. Um, I listen. I I feel like Shopify. Financials notwithstanding, because we know they're not profitable yet, uh, I think one day they will be. But, but regardless, it's pursuing what is a massive market opportunity on a global scale, and I think that what Amazon has done to date um, in in really changing the face of commerce and in, in you know bringing e-commerce to to the forefront there. There's a lot of demand out there for that, and and I think we need more players in that space than just Amazon. And I think Shopify recognized that early on, and and so they're making a lot of those investments to to uh, play a part in that market. And and I do I think that um, you know there's a lot of neat things the business is doing. It's a little bit of a riskier stock, no question. Uh, the, the the stock has been on fire uh, over the past several years, but it's a business that that I ultimately want to own. It's one where I bought a small position to open it up, and I'm thinking that if it's a stock that uh, goes down in in uh, difficult times or on a tough report, I wouldn't mind adding to it, assuming all things are still um, as they seem today. So I did just recently open a position in Shopify and wanted to to let everybody know that. So uh, anyway, uh, before we wrap up this week, uh, week Matt, we want to just uh, give the listeners our ones to watch here. Uh, what is the stock you'd be watching here this coming week and why? Well, I think Green Dot is finally ready to turn the corner. I know I've been I've been t- I talk about them a lot on the show, but. They just extended their Walmart partnership, which is their most important part of their business by far. I mean, that's how they got started by doing those Walmart money cards that you see by the checkout. Yep. Um, so they extended that. They're joint. They're starting a fintech accelerator in partnership with Walmart, which I couldn't think of a you know more deep pocketed partner that you'd want to do that with. Yeah. Um, they expanded their Uber relationship as we discussed on the show last week, and I think uh, Dan Klein also talked about it on his show. Um, so I, I think they have a whole lot going for them. The stock price popped a little bit after they renewed the Walmart partnership, but it's still way, way, way down from where it used to be. Um, I think now is a great time to get into it, and I'm. It's toward the top of my list. I, I still haven't pulled the trigger on on, on Green Dot just yet, just because I, I keep talking about it and I don't have very many opportunities. <laughs> but if you don't hear about it from me next week, that might be why, because I. It's it's toward the top of my list. All right, well, I'm gonna hold you to it, man, and we have to get you on that last stock you bought in Y list. I'm yeah, gonna it's be, been a little while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be keeping an eye on Disney. Uh, Disney earnings are out on Thursday. Uh, this is just always a great one to cover because they do so many different things and and make their money so many different ways. But clearly, the big question. Um, the big questions are all going to center around the Disney Plus streaming service that's getting ready to launch here in um, about a week, I guess. And you know, it's been a decent year for the stock. the The market it seems like it's outperforming it ever so slightly, but but generally speaking, a pretty good year. So I just I'm really looking forward to get uh, to getting some more insight on the the Disney Plus streaming service and how they see that uh, impacting their business here over the coming years. 
particularly as uh, you know, they're offering such a strong value for um, you, know, you know for what you're getting there with those three channels and the bundle and everything. So with that, Matt, I appreciate you joining us this week as always. Yeah, it's always good to be here. Um, I, I love our our conversations, and hopefully, I have something to join the next stock to watch or the last stock you bought. Sorry. I'll Hopefully I'll have something waiting. to add to that next week. I'll be it's been waiting. A while. Our listeners want to know. <laughs> All right, man. We'll catch you next week. All righty. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. From Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.